That was fantastic. There you go. And it is part of the series. So we're going to pray. I'm going to ask God to meet with us as we uh, approach his word this morning. And then this morning we are looking at Psalm 12. And so I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 12. But first, let's ask the Lord to open our minds and our hearts to the teaching and the truth of his word. We come before you, Father, recognizing that apart from you, we have no good thing. And so that means even our understanding, left alone, left to ourselves, will leave us wanting. But we recognize the promise that you've given us is of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, when he taught on the Holy Spirit, says, if you, though, speaking about using the analogy of fathers, says, if you, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, we know when our children come and we ask them for something, we know how to bless them, we know what they need, we know how to give to them. Jesus, you said, how much more, how much greater will the Father in heaven be willing to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That is an incredible promise. We claim and appropriate that promise now. For myself, as I herald this word, myself and all of us as we hear this word, that you would give us the Holy Spirit to be our counselor and our comforter and our teacher and our guide and our friend, the one who takes, who glorifies you, Jesus, by taking from what is yours and quickening it and applying it and bringing it to our lives. So illumine us now in this, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 12, a prayer of David, says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Friends, this is the word of the Lord upon which our teaching is based this morning. Shared this before, let me just kind of try to fill us in, review a little bit what we're doing this summer, why we're doing it, and how we're approaching this summer series on the Psalms. What we're doing, if just a reminder, the Psalms were the prayer book, the worship book, Okay, so this is the hymn book. Just like Carl just said, turn to hymn number 78. This is the hymn book of the Church of the Old Testament. That's what they had. That's what they prayed from. That's what they sang from. That's what defined their practical Christian life. The outworking of their doctrine. The doctrines that we taught, same doctrines. The gospel, Genesis talks about the gospel preached to Abraham. Doctrine of justification, of adoption. Israel is my firstborn son. The doctrine of the covenant. Covenants are unfolding 
So you have all that doctrine. How is that fleshed out? How is that worked out? How is that applied? The Psalms really show us kind of on the, on the ground, so to speak, at ground level, how they end up getting fleshed out, especially in the day-to-day of human life, of human experience, of our joys, of our sorrows, of our fears, of our doubts, of our, you know, Mike Tehan and I could come in this morning and say, yay, the Yankees won in 16 innings. We were experiencing joy this morning. Some of us might be facing a financial crisis. Some of us might have a doctor's appointment that we're a little apprehensive about. We're raising children. We're basically working our way through the maze of life and of relationships and the ups and downs. The psalmists put words and expressions, prayers and song, to the myriad of human experience. I read this quote last week, but I think it's absolutely appropriate to read again. The quote from John Calvin who said the Psalms express every emotion known to human experience. He says, what various and resplendent riches are contained in this treasure, it were too difficult to find words to describe. He writes, I have been wont to call this book, not inappropriately, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. I love that. He says it is an anatomy of all parts of the soul. And so our approach, how we're going about it, okay, so what we're doing, studying the Psalms, why we're doing it, because human life's all over the map, all over the place. Isn't that true of your experience? Every mood is different. Every, you can't predict. I know I can't predict what my mood will be like at two o'clock this afternoon, let alone tomorrow, the next day, or anything like that. And so, and how we're doing it is the way the Psalms were written, and remember this is wisdom literature, this is the poetry. So this is the artistic part of the Old Testament. I don't know about some of you, I'm not such an artsy guy all the time, so I struggle with this part of the Old. I I like facts and figures. I kind of have an analytic mind. But this has to guess, I'm not sure right brain, left brain, where this fits and stuff, but whatever side of the brain that deals with the artsy part. That's what you have to get in touch with a little bit here. And the way the psalmist does it is they have a literary technique, a literary style known as genres, okay? And genres are a class of texts that share formal traits, formal expressions, formal content, and tone. We've looked at some of the genres we looked at were praise. Remember I quoted the Old Testament scholar who says, The psalms of praise are psalms of orientation. The psalmist is happy. We sang from Psalm 103, which is a psalm of praise. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Things are going great. Let's celebrate. Then you have what this commentator called psalms of disorientation. They are technically called laments. They are written by those who are experiencing some sort of distress. Distress. They're prayers that are uttered when life's in turmoil, when you're experiencing confusion, distress, unhappiness of some point. We looked at that last week with Psalm 51, and that was David's personal distress. This morning, we're looking at Psalm 12, which is another psalm of King David. The subtitle tells us a psalm of David. Now, not so much 
a psalm of personal distress. This is not, have mercy on me, O God, for I have had an illicit affair with Bathsheba, tried to, you know, succeeded in murdering her husband, Uriah, kind of the, the sordid stuff of last, remember that from last week? It's not so much the personal confession as David's been watching Fox News and CNN and he doesn't like what's going on around him. Let me just put it that way. Okay? David's, and you do know they didn't have TV or the internet back then. I am describing he is looking at society. He's looking at life around him. He's looking even at the community of faith. And he's getting more and more depressed by the minute. He's getting more and more in turmoil by the minute. This psalm is a lament because of the loss of faithfulness, the loss of godliness. The loss of God describes the ideal life, life lived consistently with his covenant. And David is saying, am I alone in this? Nobody's living that way. There's no faithfulness, no godliness, no real community out there. Why? Because there's a loss of truth. Without truth, you can't have faithfulness. Without truth, you can't have godliness. Without truth, you can't have community. So he is singing a lament, sadness, because he sees what's going on around him. And at the outset, let me even share with you, lament and sadness is a difficult discipline. I'll tell you from personal experience, anger is easier. If I had two emotions, sadness and processing and crying out before the Lord, or ranting and raving, I tend to lean towards the ranting, raving side. How about you? Now, see, now I'm driving it home to a little bit. Okay, now, see, I see some of you are, li- <laughs> are listening well. This is where you like 830 service. It can be even a little bit more personal in terms of what we do. Because I want you to notice something, and I'm going to press this home in a few moments. This is a prayer. How does the text begin? Save, O Lord. David is processing how he feels. He's not going on the internet. He is not gathering his friends around him and ranting. He is not gossiping. He he alone with the Lord is developing a rich prayer life. This is why I called this series Cultivating Communion with God. This is, this is practical theology 101 for us. David is living out justifying faith, believing he is forgiven and accepted as righteous. His prayer life is incredibly free. And he's expressing, he's not going to other people here. The psalm begins, save, O Lord. Rescue, deliver, O Lord. So in other words, every application for us through this psalm is how goes it with our prayer life? How deep, how honest, how raw, how rich, how multidimensional? Do we just go through our prayer life praying through our requests and our shopping list? Now, am I going to say we shouldn't pray for other people? Of course not. We've got to keep praying for other people. Remember I said multidimensional. How rich is our prayer life cultivating fellowship, communion, partnership with the living God. 
The structure of this particular psalm is actually very simple. From the poetry, the artsy side of it, two stanzas. Verses one through four is stanza one, and what that covers is David lamenting the loss of truth. And stanza number two is is verses five through eight, and it's David trusting the victory of truth. So we're going to look at this in this order. The two stanzas, verses 1 through 4 and then verses 5 through 8. We're going to lament the loss of truth. We're going to see the Lord's response. And then we're going to trust the victory of truth. Okay, let's first look at the first stanza. So look with me at verses 1 through 4. David begins, save, O Lord. For, so now he's going to say, why am I praying? Why am I lamenting? Why am I calling out for you to intervene, for you to rescue, for you to save, for you to deliver? Why? Because the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Now the faithful there, it's very interesting. There's been a Hebrew word that I have been going over time and time again as we've been going through this series. And that Hebrew word is the word hesed. Hesed means covenant love or covenant loyalty. It's covenant faithfulness. It's faithfulness to the prescriptions, the requirements, the dictates. It's living consistently with God's covenant, which leads, by the way, to life and health and shalom and peace. The word, the Hebrew word that's used here is the word one letter different, hasid. Not hesed, but hasid. Very much connected to the word hesed. But what David is saying is he's lamenting, he's praying out, he's saying, Lord, I see that life to be lived for having humans flourish, for human beings to be what they were created to be. You want a human being to be a human being? They ought to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbor as themselves. That, by the way, is not just a New Testament verse. When Jesus gives the great commandment, he is quoting the Old Testament, the covenant God gave with Israel out of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And so when human beings live loving God and loving other people, focusing on God, being absorbed with Him, and other-centered, loving other people, guess what they do? They flourish. And David is saying, where have they gone? The faithful have vanished People living, loving, what are people doing? They're revolving around themselves. They're not loving God. They're absorbed in themselves. And basically, how in the world do I know that? I look at their speech. I look at their speech. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. May the Lord, so now he's, he's again returning to the Lord, cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that makes huge, great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue, we'll prevail. Our lips are with us. We trust our speech. Who's going to call us to account? We own our mouth. We own our bodies. We own ourselves. Who's master over us? Now, it's amazing how frequently this type of lament is exclaimed in the pages of the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament is rich with expressions of the rawness of the human experience. Let me just give you a couple of examples out of the Old Testament. The prophet Micah. Micah chapter 7, the godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright 
among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Or Isaiah 57, verse 1, the righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. Perhaps my favorite, maybe because it just resonates too often with how I feel, Elijah in 1 Kings 19, the word says, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. Want to know how many times I want to just go to my cave and stay there? Let me go to my cave. It's nice and safe. I'll put a big screen TV in my cave. I'll have some beverages of choice. Let me just run to my cave. Here's Elijah saying, this is how I feel. Let me run to my, came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Isn't it amazing that God speaks to us in our caves? When we're hiding, when we're isolating, the word of the Lord came to him. And the word of the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, of course, was what Elijah's saying true? He's the only one that's left. It's only him. He's the only one that's faithful. The rest of them forget it. Of course not. But again, here's some of the application. We have to quit hiding from our feelings and enter into the depth of our feeling and process them before the Lord. The application of this, this is a difficult application. This is how goes it with our prayer life, our intimate communion with God. Because how often, haven't you ever felt like Elijah? I'm doing the best I can. Let me alone. I'm running to my cave. I want to just sit here, feel sorry for myself, and I'm the only one left. That's how David feels right now. He's looking out about him. He's looking at society. Now, what exactly is causing his depression? What is causing his lament? In a nutshell, he looks around and he sees the ethical behavior, particularly associated with speech, has disappeared from human society. Work with, through these verses with me and the specific words David is using here. Verse 2, when he talks about everyone utters lies to his neighbor. The Hebrew there means empty talk, void. When he says flattering lips, it literally means smooth talk. When he says a double heart, the meaning is deception. Tremper Longman writes about this. He says, according to David, there is a reprehensible lack of harmony between what these people say. They flatter, they make great boasts, and what they think. They're deceptive. They have a double heart. According to David, they are hypocrites. So in verse 3, David's real honest. He says, cut them off. Get them, Lord. That's basically what his prayer is. Those who make great toss, and again, the, the literal Hebrew there is big talk. And with verse 4, they say, with our tongue, we will prevail. In other words, they're trusting their speech their words, they say, our lips are with us. Who's master over us? Do you hear the arrogance of that? Who is master over us? In other words, who's going to call us to account? David's looking out of this. He's bemoaning 
this loss of faithfulness. And he's saying, how can there be faithfulness when there's no truth? How can there be covenant community? How can there be family? How can there be fellowship when there's no truth-telling? When there's only empty talk, big talk, smooth talk, deceptive talk. And again, like I said, the lesson to be learned here is, does David go and gossip? Does he go get his friends and say how bad the community is? No, he goes to the Lord in prayer. When life looks helpless, what does David do? He cultivates and deepens his communion with God. He doesn't just read the word for information. He reads the word for communion. He meditates before the word so that he and the Lord can have a covenantal personal relationship together. He says, this is my struggle. Lord, I need you to speak to me. I'm desperate. He takes the words of John 15, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. He says, I can't have a right perspective. I can't love these people, let alone lead these people. Let me go. Can I join Elijah in the cave? And he processes before the Lord. See, what happens? What are the results? This is part of what I think David is bemoaning and lamenting. What are the consequences of the loss of truth? What are the consequences of the loss of truth? See, we have to press into this. If there is no truth-telling, if there is no honesty within the community, no one can trust one another. And so you have... A loss of fellowship, a loss of community. You only have loneliness, isolation, hiding, depression. Look at the biblical history. Look at what happened. Genesis 3, when there was an absence of truth-telling. See, what happened in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve, what was the root of their sin? See, don't just look at the behavior. Yes, they ate fruit. Why? Because they listened to a word that was false. They listened to the crafty serpent's word, a different meta-narrative, a different story. The loss of truth led to the shame, the poor behavior, the rebellion. They listened to the wrong... And then look at how does the narrative follow in Genesis? What leads from this loss of truth? There's violence. What's the very next thing that happens in Genesis chapter 4? You have the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. As you go through Genesis 5 and leading up to Genesis 6, what is the description that leads up to the judgment of God through the flood with Noah? Violence and corruption on the earth. David is bemoaning this because with the loss of truth, there is a loss of community, the loss of fellowship. And he laments that loss of truth. So how does God respond? That brings us to the second stanza, verses 5 through 8. Verse 5 says, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Verses 1 through 4, you have David praying, lamenting the loss of truth. And I want you to notice where verse 5 begins. Verse 5 is the Lord's answer. The Lord's answer. 
says, I will now arise, says the Lord. So this is the Lord's answer. And then verses six through eight is David's response to the Lord's answer. And what is the Lord's answer? It is the victory of truth. Do we trust the victory of truth? And the Lord's answer is because the poor, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise. Now notice this. David wasn't directly praying for the poor and needy. Maybe he's representing them. Maybe he's not. We really don't know. But his prayer, his lament, elicits this response from the Lord. That the breakdown of community and society due to the lack of faithfulness, due to the lack of a commitment to truth, will lead to the oppression and exploitation of the poor and needy, the most vulnerable of society. And this moves the Lord's heart, moves him to action. That the down and outs of society who experience oppression move the Lord to do what? Get up. Arise. Move. Take action. Now, of course, we have to be aware of something in our interpretation here that requires a bit of nuance. See, at face value, we may look at this and we may go poor and needy, and we may assume that only means the economically poor and needy. That's only the economically down and out. That's actually not what the Hebrew word indicates there. The Hebrew word, the word anavim, means it could include the economically poor, but it means any who are vulnerable, down and out, without resources. It could be without connections, without help, without friendship, without physical abilities. And you can be wealth, very wealthy economically and still be vulnerable and still be poor and needy. Let me just give you a couple New Testament examples. Zacchaeus in the New Testament was a very, very wealthy man, very rich man. There's a reason he gave back half of all his earnings to give. So he had a ton of material resources, but he was very vulnerable. He was down and out. Why? Because he was destitute of God and destitute of relationships. He was oppressed by his own sin, by his own selfishness. Take Mary Magdalene. We don't know much about her economic situation, but she was certainly down and out. She was certainly needy. See, needy is a spiritual condition that can, but doesn't have to, include a physical condition. And what it means is that we are all poor and needy. We are all vulnerable. We are all without. Why does Jesus say in John 15, 5, apart from me, we can do nothing. He doesn't say apart from me, you can do 75%. Let me get you over the top with that last 25%. Apart from me, we can do nothing. You're poor, you're needy, you're vulnerable. And this moves God to action. He says, I will now arise. He shows his heart for the oppressed, his care for them. He shows his empathy, which leads to action. The application, does our communion with God lead us to empathy towards others? Do we see their vulnerability? No matter where they are economically, no matter where they are materially, no matter what they look like on the outside, do we care enough to ask God to give us understanding to show us their vulnerabilities? 
to understand other people. Because that's what the Lord does. That's how the Lord moves in. And then when it says, I will now arise, Tremper Longman commenting on the Hebrews here says, he will now arise as a warrior who will fight our battles. Who is a man of war who fights for his people, goes before them. And of course, how we see this today playing out. How does he fight today and how do we know he can be trusted? Look at verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. You can have confidence in the promise of the victory of the truth, in the truth of God's word. This becomes a model prayer for the oppressed, looking to God for help and protection. And who are the oppressed? It is every single one of us. And of course, where do we see this psalm fulfilled? What is the ultimate fulfillment of the word of God? We look at verse 6 that says, the words of the Lord are pure words. Does this simply mean the words on the page? We should trust the black and white ink, or maybe the red letters that we read? We know Luke 24, John 1, they all tell us, what is the word ultimately about? The word is ultimately about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, we see this psalm fulfilled in his life, but especially in his cross. Listen to how Peter puts it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he reminds the people of God, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. So there's the cruciform application, the cruciform life, that we might walk with Jesus in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Only pure words. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore himself. He, bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It is by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The victory of truth is in the life and death, and resurrection, and ascension, the person, and work, and ministry of Jesus Christ. As Michael Wilcock writes, the wicked might say, we will triumph, but that's their kind of word, an arrogant word, and they won't. The Lord says, I will arise. That is his kind of word, and he will. He will, in fact, have the last word. And the last word, the final word, the word of truth, the word of life, the word that leads to the fountains of living water is Jesus Christ. His word will triumph. In him, the oppressed find safety. Don't you love what that says there back in verse 6? 
or verse 7, excuse me, you will guard us from generation. You will keep us safe. The safety, the refuge, the security for which we long. Jesus gives. The oppressed find safety and refuge in him. Will we? Will you? Do you? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are the final word and that your word is truth. And I thank you that your word prevails, your word is a word of love, and that love governs us now. So Lord, may we find refuge in you. May you deepen our communion with you. In Jesus' name, amen.